The Egyptians treated Israel like dirt. They beat them and forced them to do harsh and ruthless slave labor. They forced abortion upon male Israelite children, likely while still in the womb, and male children who made it all the way to birth were drowned in the river. And who knows what they might have done with the girls that they let live. By all means, Egypt broke Israel's spirit with the horrible sins they committed against them. You can imagine how hard it would be to show God's love to another race when, when this is how another race has treated you. How hard it would be to treat them as the image of God when they have not imaged God to you in the slightest. These are the kinds of atrocities that live on in the collected memory of your descendants. Even if you can get to the point of forgiving, you can never arrive at the place of forgetting. Eventually, God stepped into this picture and liberated his people from their slavery, but they still weren't liberated from slavery in their minds, for somehow, they often managed to look back at slavery in Egypt as preferable over their newfound freedom. When new challenges would arise, they would reminisce of how much better they thought they had it in Egypt. For example, when they discovered that they had to go to war with the giants in the Holy Land, the whole congregation said to them, Would that we have died in the land of Egypt, or would that we have died in that wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into the, this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Somehow, despite all of God's miraculous provision, they still had a slave mentality. We see the same kind of thinking in today's human trafficking victims. Uh, while being trafficked truly is horrible, some victims have been broken enough to see their pain as normal. Adjusting to a good life without that pain can take some time to accept, especially if Stockholm Syndrome is at play or they can't see how they've been victimized. Sometimes they just want to go back to slavery, and sometimes they do. Eventually, eventually Israel saw how much better life with God was as they moved into the Holy Land, experienced fruition, and, and found that their God could not be defeated. It certainly wasn't always great because Israel succumbed to idolatry and sin over and over again, which brought a lot of pain into their lives. But in their best moments, they saw that life with God was as good as life could be. It seems that perhaps their underdog story fed them a new kind of narrative. They had gone from slaves to the top of the world. They were God's chosen people and nothing could stop them. They had seen it for themselves. God had been gracious with them time and time again. And, and it seemed like even their sin couldn't hold them back from God's favor. So they mistook his patience for acceptance and maybe even approval of their sin and continued to live in sin until eventually it got bad enough that they had to face the judgment of exile for it. They had gone from slaves under Egypt to kings and queens until they too had become their own form of Egypt. For they eventually became a more sinful nation than any of the nations God had called them to war against. They had gone from being an oppressed race to being an oppressive race. Because of that, 
they were now back at the bottom all over again. They were slaves in exile under Babylon. Their kingdom had been destroyed and now they were servants to another kingdom. But God had promised them through the prophets that one day he would come back to them and restore them. So they knew that their journey wasn't over. Yes, uh, they would have to pay for their sins, but no, their sins would not get the last word. While Israel was in exile between the Old and New Testament, they became overly zealous about living by the laws that God had set in place through Moses. They hadn't always been good at this in the past. In fact, when King Josiah was reigning, Israel didn't even know there was a law. The high priest was just sorting through some stuff one day when he stumbled across the book of the law. It was then given to the king to read, who tore his clothes in agony when he saw all the standards they hadn't been living up to. In our context, this would be similar to a pastor cleaning out a church and accidentally stumbling across a Bible and having no idea what it was. But though Israel had ignored their scriptures in the past, all of their focus was on the scriptures while in exile. Since they had been exiled for their sin, they hoped to earn their restoration through their righteousness. They studied the book of the law like crazy and debated over how to best practice it. They, they searched their scriptures for deeper meanings and created different doctrines out of what it had to say. They became intent on earning their salvation, hoping to usher in God's kingdom through their actions. The Pharisees were one such group working on trying to create and maintain this righteous community, uh, holding up people to the laws in unrealistic ways as, as though perfect performance of the law could act as a magical incantation for their rescue from exile. But rather than fix their situation, this only broke Israel more. They had ripped the heart of God out of the scriptures and were left preaching God's word without God's character and love. They themselves achieved the standards of the law, but not the heart of it. And even when they upheld the law, they did not do so, they only did so for applause. And on top of all of this, these religious officials had also made a rather lucrative business off of their work and gained power through it, which, as usual, corrupted the heart behind everything they were doing. And Jesus called them out harshly. And that's easily part of the reason they killed Jesus. Who was this outside Israelite that, that made these bold statements that they, the religious leaders of Israel, didn't agree with? Where did he get his miraculous powers from? Who was he to accuse them of being a bunch of phonies? Jesus was not only a threat to their security, but to their collective community efforts to usher in the kingdom of God with their righteousness. For Jesus was leading people away from following them. In their minds, he was a threat to be dealt with for the good of all of Israel. God showed up and they killed him. They may have found the book of the law, but they did not know the God who gave it to them. They were so blinded by their anger and supposed righteousness that they didn't even notice that they had hung him on a cross. But even those who did follow Jesus had a hard time understanding what he did next. 
Because as it ends up, Jesus wasn't only interested in saving God's select nation, Israel. Rather, after saving Israel, he then instructed them to lie down their racism, their boundaries, and their dividing lines, and go into the rest of the world to invite people of every nation to join Israel. Much of Jesus' focus and outreach while he was on the earth was to reach the lost sheep of the house of Israel. It's not that he didn't care about the people of other nations or reach out to or want to reach out to them too, but he knew that a part of his mission in that season was to go specifically to the exiled, to, to God's chosen people. But throughout his ministry to God's chosen people, we see bold hints that the day will come where his gospel will eventually go to all of the other unchosen nations as well. That time came after he was resurrected back to life. A grand work had been done on the cross and, and he wanted all nations to now become a part of God's chosen people. So if anyone was willing to leave everything behind and follow him, they too would be accepted into Israel and thus inherit the great things that come with being a part of God's people in this life and the even greater things that come in the resurrected life. While laws had been in place throughout the Old Testament that allowed outsiders to become an Israelite, this possibility changed from a footnote of the law to the main focus of grace. And Jesus set that focus in place in his final words to us, which we call the Great Commission. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always, to the end of the age. Many of us have this verse memorized and have recited it so many times that we don't always pay attention to what we're actually saying or how it would have been heard when Jesus said it. But in light of our journey through Israel's story so far, uh, just imagine how strange the statement must have sounded to his disciples. I mean, they were Israelites. They were the chosen ones. The other nations had been their oppressors, the unchosen ones. The disciples had just spent a lot of time close to Jesus ministering primarily to other Israelites. They had been on mission to restore the kingdom of God, which consisted of Israelites. And now, as Jesus gets ready to ascend into the heavens, he, he tells these same disciples that their mission for the rest of their lives is to go into the rest of the world and invite everyone else to join Israel? And yeah, that includes the Egyptians that used to enslave them. That includes the remnant of Babylon that exiled them. That includes Rome that was currently persecuting them make disciples of all nations lay down your racism uh, lay down your prejudice if god can make himself a servant to humanity and wash our feet we can make ourselves a servant of all others regardless of their race gender culture or socioeconomic differences now as you might imagine, it took the early church uh, quite some time to catch on to all of this, as evidenced by the struggles found especially throughout the book of Acts. This book documents the growing curve of understanding that the gospel was also for the Gentiles, the outsiders, the unchosen ones. 
God first makes the case clear that the gospel is for all nations in the story of Pentecost, which finds its roots in the story of the Tower of Babel. You might recall earlier from this series on God's grand framework that Deuteronomy 32 tells us that when God divided up the nations, he handed each nation over to a son of God, that is, a supernatural or spiritual being. He then chose the people of Israel as his own nation. According to the Bible, this dividing of the nations happened at the Tower of Babel. In this story, we come across a stubborn people who don't really seem to be following God all that well. Instead of filling the earth as both Adam and Noah were instructed to do, everyone is instead trying to build a tower that will keep them located in one place. And since archaeologists are fairly certain that this Tower of Babel was a ziggurat, which it's more or less a stairway of sorts meant to reach up to the heavens so that spiritual beings could walk down to the earth. We see that the Tower of Babel likely represents some kind of faulty religious idea. Uh, perhaps they were trying to cram God into their box of, of, of how they wanted him to operate, or maybe it was connected to the giants of old, uh, since they were trying to make a name for themselves and the giants were known as the men of the name. Whatever the case was, there is enough going on in the Tower of Babel story for us to tell that things are looking sketchy. God responded to all this sketchiness by, by changing everyone's languages, which propelled them away from the Tower and into new nations that fell under these sons of God. This was their punishment. Uh, rather than have the one true perfect God lead them, they now had lesser imperfect beings lead them. For now on, only Abraham and his descendants will be following God. So, with the Tower of Babel and all of this in mind, uh, we see that Pentecost becomes the great reversal of the Tower of Babel. Just as everyone was in one place at the time of Babel, so was everyone in one place at the on the day of Pentecost. While the people of Babel were propelled away from God by their languages, the people of Pentecost were all welcomed back to God by their languages. Pentecost is the Holy Spirit's welcome home ceremony and an empowerment service to complete Jesus' great commission. Authority in heaven and earth was once divided amongst spiritual beings and human beings, but now it all rests in Jesus alone. And so on Pentecost, the Holy Spirit leads the charge in forcing Christians out to reach the nations that were once disinherited by God, they will extend the invitation to come home. Peter will eventually come to understand this when he watches a person outside of Israel receive the Holy Spirit. Philip will see just how indiscriminate God's love is when the Holy Spirit pushes him to evangelize to an Ethiopian eunuch on the fringes of society. Paul will eventually realize that God has called him to be an apostle to the Gentiles, and he will begin to make his way to the ends of the earth, which in his time was considered Rome, which is where he was headed. He would share the good news with everyone that he could. But though the early church was learning to reach outsiders, they didn't always get it right. Uh, for example, there's this story where Paul was eating with the Gentiles, and then he saw some super religious Jews come by, and and he got nervous, so he left their dinner table, left the Gentiles, and all the other Christian Jews that were with him followed suit. In this moment, 
Peter brought racial division into the church. And Paul had some strong words for Peter for that one. Stories and narratives like this should go to convict us today, for most of our churches are built around the things that divide us rather than the Jesus who unites us. We often church shop with the intention of finding a like-minded and similarly cultured church that we can relate to. And even when there is diversity in our church, that diversity is often divided into locations throughout the sanctuary. We think that 2,000 years of following the Great Commission would have made us a bit more intent on fighting this issue, but that doesn't seem to be the case. It seems we're sometimes more willing to raise up missionaries to go to other cultures than to open our own church doors to those cultures. The early church calls us to repent and not make the same mistakes that they did. They have given us examples of both what to do and what not to do, and they expect that we'll take note. There is no space for racism in the Church of the Great Commission. By all means, the Church cannot complete its mission with racism in their hearts, for it would hold them back from the very thing they are assigned to do. In the end, God is coming back not for a white bride, but a diverse one. This woman will have within her glimpses of every nation, tribe, and tongue. Within her will be found representatives of people from every last false god that once held power. Every spiritual being once granted authority will feel the loss of having people from their nation stripped right out of their hands by Jesus. The gods will be sentenced to the finality of death, while the humans who once followed them will move on to heaven because they have chosen to follow Jesus. To be truly evangelistic, we must be truly anti-racist. We must open our hearts to those whom God has opened his heart to. We must lay down our pride and privilege and wash feet, for our God laid down his pride and privilege to do that for us. We who often find ourselves at the top of the chain of command in the church in the West must recognize that we are largely Gentiles who eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. We should be humble enough to realize that we were not born into the line of the chosen, but were extended the opportunity to join the chosen. And then we should practice that same kind of humility when we go to offer others the same chance. God is not content to come back until he has obtained the masses, and so the Great Commission continues on. We are bound to it until Jesus returns. For our God longs for the world, and he will have it.